This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway. Thank you for your time this Sunday morning. Our guest this morning is Adam Clayton Powell III. He is a senior fellow in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California and director of the university's Washington programs for their Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy. Our focus this morning is in his role as the executive director of USC's Election Cybersecurity Initiative, which is um, shooting to provide training for all 50 states to reinforce election integrity and to build defense against digital attacks. And they just had the uh, version of that panel for the state of Nebraska conducted on June 18th which was in cooperation with panelists from the UNL Law College's Center for Nebraska Governance and Technology, the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Law Program, and my own University of Nebraska-Lincoln College of Journalism and Mass Communications. He joins us via Zoom today. Adam, welcome back. We're glad to have you back in Nebraska via Zoom. Thanks, Rick. Uh, good to be with you, and thanks to you and all your colleagues who I think set a pretty hard by a pretty high bar for uh, a university partnership. Uh, it really worked very well. Well, we appreciate that, uh, Adam Clayton Powell the third. A long, long, lengthy list of uh, of professional journalistic accomplishments, including uh, time spent with CBS News as VP of News for National Public Radio. News director for 1010 Winds in New York City, along with working for the Freedom Forum, the museum. Oh my goodness, your your uh, your list goes on forever. We could I could talk with you for hours about about our journalism backgrounds and interests. But let's talk about the Election Security Initiative, and I want to start by going back to its genesis. What uh, what got this on your radar to begin with, and how did it get started? Well, we've actually been working on this for close to five years. And uh, it, it would be great to say that we were brilliant and we foresaw all of this happening, but that's not the case. Uh, what happened in 2015 is that we'd been running a series of meetings in Washington, D.C. to increase the public service features of mobile phones. And one of the people who came to those meetings was a guy named Vince Cerf, who uh, with Bob Kahn uh, really did invent the Internet back in the 1960s. And at some point uh, in the, around the middle of 2015, he said, why are we talking about mobile phones? I said, well, that's what this meeting is about. That's what this whole series of initiatives is about. And he said, well, you know, you can buy a coffee maker now with an IP address. So don't you really want to secure everything connected to the Internet? And everybody around the table sort of nodded. Said, okay, no more mobile phones. Let's talk about securing everything connected to the Internet. And so that's how we began on this path. Uh, and then... Uh, in 2017, uh, well, in 2016, after the 2016 election, it was pretty clear that elections were going to be a big piece of this. And uh, uh, the uh, chairs of the uh, House uh, uh, Committees on Homeland Security and the House Committee on Science, Technology, and Space, uh, Mike McCall and Lamar Smith, uh, um, uh, met with us. And uh, we started working with the federal government on cybersecurity issues. And then in 2017, the National Governors Association approached us and said, uh, would we be their uh, university partner? So uh, we put together a team which included uh, not only the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, but also School of Engineering, School of Public Policy, uh, the Business School, Law School, so on and so on. Uh, USC's president said, this is not just an engineering problem. 
it's going to affect it's going to affect every part of what we do in research and teaching. So uh, we uh, had, had some funding in uh, 2019 to begin to work directly with state governments and state capitals uh, after a, uh, a series of competitions. Uh, six states were selected, and we began doing closed-door, uh, high-level workshops uh, for state election officials. And then a little less than a year ago, uh, we were approached by Google, and uh, they said, how would you like to do all 50 states? And after I recovered my breath, I said, uh, all 50 states, yeah, that's, that's a multi-million dollar uh, campaign you're talking about. And uh, said, yes, I said, well, we don't have time to get this through your hierarchy. It's in my budget already. Oh, did I give you a card? <laughs> so, uh, and literally in 20 minutes, um, we worked out the details, not all the details, but the, the basic uh, uh, elements of what we're doing now, which is to visit all 50 states, of course, uh, with the uh, limitations now on travel and meetings, we had to pivot to, uh, to do them uh, remotely by, uh, by Zoom and, uh, and by video. Uh, but uh, originally the plan was to be on the ground in all 50 states, certainly including Nebraska. Um, and uh, uh, with uh, cybersecurity training for people in campaigns, people in elections, and very different from our previous programs, open to the public. So anybody could come. We've had lots of students come. We've had lots of faculty members come. Uh, we've had people come from, uh, from different industries. Uh, and uh, still our focus has been on people in campaigns and people in elections. And, uh, and uh, thank, uh, thanks to you and your colleagues, we had uh, quite a turnout in uh, Nebraska last week. Yes, I was pleased to see that. I think I, I counted over 60 people, at least at one point, uh, plugged in. And I don't know how that holds up to some of your other states, but that, that makes me think that it is an issue uh, that is, is of concern for all of us. And I, it's not just a, a Nebraska issue. It's not just an American issue. It's an international issue. And I recall having led a couple of tours of students studying abroad in Ireland back in 2015 and 2016, that the Irish Republic was wrestling with this exact same concern about how they were holding their elections and making sure that uh, they were keeping a close eye on a lot of the, not just the, the uh, cybersecurity issues, but just protecting the results and not rushing to judgment on things. And that the Irish people were, were cool with that. They didn't need to know everything immediately. They were willing to make sure that the votes were counted properly and accurately. And, and uh, I thought at the time, wow, this is, they're, they're really, they're onto something in 2015 and then 2016 rolled around here. And uh, in the aftermath, all the concerns that have been raised about the potential of uh, international interference. And uh, I think it got us thinking about 2020 before 2016 was even over with. You're quite correct that uh, 2016 was a real wake up call for the United States. And uh, you're also absolutely correct that it's an international issue. Every democracy is, uh, uh, is under attack. And uh, it varies from country to country. Uh, there is an organization that doesn't get a lot of publicity. They don't want a lot of publicity called the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. And they basically work with governments, with democracies around the world to secure their elections. And uh, uh, they worked in uh, Indonesia, uh, India, Ukraine, uh, wherever there is a democratic election. Uh, they try to help the government. They don't want a lot of publicity because uh, uh, they don't want to be seen as, you know, we're the smart Americans. We're going to go in and help the other folks. Well, no. They say it's their election. There are different laws, different rules in each country. 
All we want to do is be of whatever help we can. The other thing they do is they want to watch to see how each country is attacked because they said you know, Indonesia in some ways was the rehearsal. India was the dress rehearsal. Uh, the Ukraine was the show and, uh, and we're, the big, we're the big prize. Along that same line, uh, in terms of the international involvement, uh, I, I know those efforts have been have been going on around the around the, the world. What do you think were the big takeaways in terms of cybersecurity from the 2016 election, and how has that informed, or should it inform, how we uh, face the one coming up here in a few months? Well, what 2016 really showed us is uh, that uh, as uh, one of the leading people in election security in the federal government, he says, this is really like the old Smokey the Bear PSAs, you know, where only you could prevent forest fires, or only you can stop cyber hacks, because it, these attacks are going to go after everybody. And so everyone has to be aware of it. The, uh, uh, just before we uh, uh, did our Nebraska program, we did a program uh, for North Dakota. And the governor there said that uh, the Russians are going after tiny school districts with 200 people in them. Why are they going after tiny school districts? Because they want to get into the, uh, uh, into the home networks of the students in those districts. Why? Because their parents are National Guards people who are guarding our the Strategic Air Command missile uh, air bases and missile uh, locations. So even if you're a tiny 200 person school district, you can come under sustained attack from Russia, China, Iran, anybody from around the world. That's so eye-opening. And I know in, in relation to COVID-19, a lot of people who live out here in what some people refer to as flyover country felt that, well, we live in small rural communities. The virus is never going to affect us. And they have, in some cases, been some of the hardest hit because of packing plants or retirement homes or whatever. So it is extraordinarily naive of any of us to feel that location or size of our community makes any difference as to how valuable a target it might be. And as we've gone from state to state, one of our primary missions is to observe and share best practices. So the idea that Nebraska could uh, successfully pivot to a largely vote-by-mail uh, primary election um, and in fact put in security measures that are uh, so highly regarded that now other states are copying Nebraska. That's the kind of thing which um, uh, you don't see in the New York Times or on CNN, but uh, you really find only by being on the ground in, in the states. David Broder, one of the uh, great political reporters once said, you can't understand politics in the United States unless you go to state capitals. And what we're finding is you can't really understand what's going on in cybersecurity unless you're out in the 50 states. Well, and we're glad you were here as part of that. And one of the guests you had, and I think it would say it's a great idea to involve state leaders in this discussion as well. And you had a member of our House of Representatives do a short presentation, but then you had the Assistant Secretary of State who detailed the finer points of Nebraska's election process and the protections put in place. And I'm glad to hear that other states feel that, that they have done things well, because certainly the opportunity to vote by mail, particularly in a time of a pandemic like this, has come under some round criticism from folks at the national level. So uh, how does that, how do those two pictures mesh up when you take a look at them and looking at Nebraska and the relative success they had with what was only about a 25% actual in-person turnout 
in our primary, and yet the criticism that mail-in is taking nationally. Well, what we're finding fairly consistently across the country, uh, Republican, Democratic, you know, the party's not, uh, it doesn't really make a difference, is that in the states, there is much more focus on how do we make this work? And there's much less of the acrimony that we find uh, every day, every hour, practically in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it's the, if you look at every poll that's taken, uh, state and local government leaders are far more popular than people in Washington of either party. Uh, and, and we're seeing that in cybersecurity, as in so many other areas, uh, the, the state and local governments have to deliver. They can't afford to squabble over this. And so uh, being able to pivot to a uh, largely vote by mail uh, election is something which uh, was not easy. Elections are very, very complicated things to, uh, to hold. And you know, most of us uh, uh, didn't think about it very much five years ago. But the, uh, the election director of New Jersey has a wonderful joke that he likes to tell. He said, election workers are like Santa Claus. You only see them once a year but the rest of the time they're getting ready. <laughs> and that's, that's, um, that's really ever more the case this year because things are changing. Um, it, it wasn't in Nebraska, but the other states are changing the dates of the election, how you vote, where you vote. And under the best of circumstances with the best of intentions, these are very, very difficult changes to, to pull off successfully. And we've seen uh, a lot of places uh, that uh, didn't do it successfully. Uh, Los Angeles had uh, big problems. Washington, D.C. had a, a really uh, difficult uh, time uh, with their election. Um, and uh, so it's, it's something which really uh, demands uh, people, training, uh, money. I don't know of anybody anywhere in the country who thinks they have as much money as they really need to hold a, a secure election in uh, in this year with the uh, with the COVID nineteen virus changing so much, tell us about the genesis of the I don't want to call it a tagline or a slogan, but you have essentially a slogan for uh, all of your uh, online training here. Tell us how that came about. Our, our slogan is uh, uh, our candidate is democracy, and that started because uh, when we were beginning to plan this this fifty state campaign. We met with people who have run national presidential campaigns, state campaigns, local campaigns, state and local election workers. And in one meeting, uh, we met with uh, two people who've run presidential campaigns, uh, Bob Shrum, who ran uh, John Kerry's campaign in 2004 and many other Democratic campaigns, and Mike Murphy, who ran Jeb Bush's campaign in 2016 and many other Republican campaigns. And um, uh, and I to so, so break the ice, I said, well, you know, we're running a 50 state campaign just like uh, just like you did. And that Mike Murphy looked at me and he said, nobody runs a 50 state campaign anymore. You run a, a campaign that's maybe 16 or 17 states. The last person that ran a 50 state campaign was Richard Nixon in 1960. And he was up in Alaska when Jack Kennedy was in Ohio. Look how that worked out. So, uh, uh, so I said, OK, we're running a 50 state campaign, uh, unlike what you guys did. But uh, we don't have a candidate. And Shrum leaned forward and he said, Adam, you're wrong. I said, no, no, we don't have a candidate. We're bipartisan, we're independent. He said, Adam, your candidate is democracy. I said, oh, Bob, I'm gonna steal that with credit. So uh, that, uh, that day became our, uh, our slogan. And our candidate is democracy and that's who we wanna have win. 
I want a T-shirt that says that on it at some point. <laughs> that would be grand. That's a great idea. <laughs> There's a whole merch opportunity here, Adam. You guys need to tie into at some point. Uh, but but that does speak to what you said earlier, which is that there are democracies all around the world that are facing the same issue. Their political parties differ, the names of their parties differ, but their goal is to have free and fair elections to shore up their democracy. So I think it's a great tagline, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that it's done so well for you. What have been the reactions that you've seen so far? I know you haven't done all 50 states yet, but... Uh, what, what are you hearing back after the fact from people who've, who've attended one of your online training sessions? Uh, we've done more than half the states now. We're on track to do all 50 by uh, early, uh, certainly no later than mid-October. Uh, we've been pleasantly surprised. Going into this, we thought that this would be more controversial than it might be, that there might be some people who would uh, try to... Uh, 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 attack us one way or the other, or even attack us uh, 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 technically, uh, technologically. Instead, the reaction has been, without exception, uh, positive. Everybody realizes this is a problem. Everybody realizes that we all need as much help as we can get in, uh, to address this. And then in, uh, uh, in early March, when the virus began to hit, everybody realized, you know, uh-oh, now we have the problem magnified far more than we ever imagined it would be. So uh, we have been uh, uh, greeted uh, by uh, state officials, local officials, campaigns, uh, 100% positively. In fact, we begin in every state with, uh, as, as, as in Nebraska, with the Secretary of State or the Attorney General or somebody who's in charge of the elections, uh, bringing us up to date on what's happening in that state, uh, what uh, changes have taken place in that state. And uh, one uh, political journalist actually said, you're the only people going to all 50 states, with the exception of you know, the, the FBI and Homeland Security. So uh, come November, you're going to have the only on-the-ground, state-by-state reporting of what was going on in cybersecurity, and uh, as well as uh, as well as uh, other things that are going on politically, how political cam- campaigns are changing, how uh, how politicians uh, have to change, how uh, state and local governments have to change. It's really uh, it's really uh, been quite a learning experience for us, far more than we ever expected. Did that sidebar of data collection that you just mentioned had that even crossed your mind when you set out to put this together? Uh, we did have one reporter who uh, said he was going to tag along with us to all 50 states. He, he came to the first two and then dropped out. <laughs> but uh, uh, we are collecting far more information than we ever imagined. And because of these, uh, uh, these remote sessions uh, all being recorded, we have a full record of uh, what not only what the uh, state officials are saying, but as uh, as you saw in Nebraska, uh, what uh, what uh, academic researchers are saying, uh, what uh, media people are saying, uh, what uh, what people in uh, uh, different uh, thought leaders on the ground in each state are saying, it's a it's a quite a remarkable record, which is far greater than anything we had planned. The other thing that we have is if you if you look at all the all fifty states, we're going to have thousands of people who will have attended our workshops. We will have had hundreds of people who've spoken at our workshops. And that's 
quite a network. We're not quite certain what we're going to do with it, but, but uh, we think that these are self-selected individuals in all 50 states uh, who all realize uh, that this problem is not going to go away in November of 2020. If anything, uh, the challenge becomes uh, even greater as we go forward because our adversaries have R&D budgets and they're spending money to attack democracy itself. Right. And we hear reports of, uh, of foreign governments who actually fund sending people to school to learn how to do this hacking and this uh, cyber intrusion. So, yeah, we're, we're facing uh, some challenges we're not even aware of. And I remember listening to a, a, a law enforcement official, federal law enforcement official years ago who was going to a, a seminar on hacking and hackers. And he said, the problem that we have is that the people that are out there doing the hacking are driving Mercedes and we're on horseback. He said, it's just really tough to keep up with what these folks are doing. All you can do essentially is react. And so I like the fact that you're being proactive in this, in this campaign to try to get as many people as possible thinking about best practices and, and agreeing on the, the need for, for fair elections. A lot's been made of social media and we're at that interesting time where we're seeing a lot of pressure put on some of the social media platforms to more thoroughly police and enforce what's being said. Certainly social media has contributed to a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that you talked about in your seminar here on the 18th. So what are the best practices for folks listening this morning to uh, better monitor their own social media use and to help them determine their own best practices for what to believe and what to ignore? One slogan that uh, keeps coming up over and over again is think before you click. That uh, one of the uh, problems with social media is that, um, and, and I'll set aside the people who are spreading disinformation, deliberately spreading uh, false information, but one of the biggest problems with social media is that we see something and it looks like fun or it's something we agree with and it's so easy to forward it or uh, uh, or post it and have it go viral uh, without spending that extra couple of seconds even to think does this make sense where did this come from and for decades uh, we've been saying that the internet is democratizing media, that uh, uh, the era of uh, gatekeepers, you know, Walter Cronkite and, uh, uh, and the, the networks uh, have been totally bypassed. Well, uh, yes, that's true, but um, now we're seeing a downside to that, which is that anybody can spread anything they want. And, uh, and you, you and I have been in uh, journalism long enough to know that every October before a big election, there's always the, uh, the surprise that uh, comes from one party or another. Uh, I remember when one, one election, uh, I was at uh, NPR, running, running NPR News, when somebody came in and said, oh, you know, the vice president of the United States has committed a felony. I said, really? What's your source? Oh, there's this guy who says that this is true. Uh, I think we need a little more than this guy saying it's true. Uh, let's at least have two sources and look into it a little more carefully. And we wound up not putting that on the air because we couldn't go beyond this one guy saying it was true. Uh, and in fact, after the election, uh, uh, I, I, a good friend of mine, a former colleague at CBS, had become the NBC News Washington bureau chief. And I said, you know, our people said that you had that story and we kept watching NBC Nightly News and you never used it. 
And he said, oh, well, our people said you had that story. So we kept listening to all things considered, waiting to see if you would use it, because if you used it, you had better sources than we did. <laughs> but, but today with social media, anybody could take that and spread it, and it would go like wildfire. We've seen the craziest stuff uh, spread like crazy. And so uh, think before you click uh, is uh, one simple safeguard. Where did this come from? Did this really come from somebody who knew what they were talking about? Did this really come from a respected source, a news organization or otherwise? Did it really come from uh, the Biden campaign? Uh, that, that was an issue in, uh, in Iowa where some people were spreading, uh, spreading reports on the night of the Iowa caucuses that the Biden campaign was uh, responsible for the technical problems. Uh, well, no, there was no, uh, no indication whatsoever that uh, it was the Biden campaign and seemed to have uh, uh, have uh, have uh, evidence of that. But you look at the evidence that it was clearly, uh, fortunately, it was very amateurishly done. But it was clear it didn't it had nothing to do with the Biden campaign. Um, so think before you click uh, 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 is uh, is a is a great motto. And in terms of disinformation, people who are deliberately spreading bad information, that's a totally different category. Um, and what we do in our in our uh, all of our workshops is to uh, say that uh, all of the major platforms, Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Twitter, they all have desks that are staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, and they will uh, respond to reports of disinformation, deliberate uh, spreading of incorrect information uh, by uh, 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 by taking it down. But even if it takes them five minutes to take down disinformation, in those five minutes, it can spread very, very widely. I'm reminded of a uh, mentor who said back in the early days of the internet, the good news and the bad news about the internet are contained in the same sentence that everybody becomes a publisher. Exactly correct. Exactly correct. So. All right. To that end, then, when you look at the collision of uh, wanting to take down clearly, clearly misleading disinformation kinds of posts with people who claim there is somehow an infringement of First Amendment rights, uh, interesting in a in a privately held company. Uh, but what do you I'm sure you've heard this argument that people have brought up. What's what's your response and what should our response be when people say, well, they can't. They don't have any right to 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 censor speech. That's that goes against our our American held beliefs. Well, first you make the, the the obvious point. They are private companies, so it's not the government censoring speech. Uh, but it's a it's a difficult position, uh, and it's it's hard to uh, for many people to feel sympathy for a multi billion dollar company. But but it's a difficult position for uh, uh, for the big platforms because once they start down this path, where do you draw the line? Okay. Obvious falsehoods, obvious attempts at uh, uh, at uh, uh, disinformation, uh, fine. But then you quickly get into partisan politics, and I know this will come as a shock to uh, to your listeners. Uh, but you know, sometimes candidates don't tell the truth, and so <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> what a shocking idea. So do you try to go in and do fact checks on everything a candidate has said? Uh, I, I don't think uh, that goes very far. I mean, a lot of news organizations are doing that. And they say, okay, uh, uh, to the public and to voters, 
uh, we think uh, we've investigated this and we think that uh, like the Washington Post has a scale of one to four, uh, four being uh, uh, outright, uh, uh, outright uh, uh, untruth. And so the Post will say, okay, we've looked at this, this statement and we think it, um, it deserves a two. So some of it's true, some of it's not true. Well, if you're Facebook or Twitter or you know, any of the other platforms and you're trying to decide, do you take something down? Well, something's partially true. Do you want to get involved in that? It's very, very difficult because, among other things, uh, and I've, I've had this conversation for years and years with people at, at major platforms, are you a publisher or are you a common carrier? A common carrier is like the telephone. A publisher has to have some responsibility for what they publish. Interesting, interesting choice. Indeed. If you were going to be coming into one of our journalism courses, our reporting courses as a guest lecturer, what would you tell aspiring young journalists uh, that would be their, the, the best information or the best advice you could give them about the, the field they're about ready to enter, and either in terms of covering elections or just in, in journalism in general, given your terrific background at all levels of it? Uh, well, first, journalism in general, the, the basics really haven't changed. You have to, uh, if you're a reporter, uh, your job is to go out and report and find what happened. Uh, and you can go through the classic who, what, when, where, why, uh, uh, so what, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and prepare your story. Uh, the, the one constant in journalism is change, and so much of it is, is driven by technology. Uh, but in elections, we're going to see something different this year. Um, and we've seen it from time to time, uh, and most notably, I guess, in the uh, Florida recount in 2020. But the returns, because of vote by mail and because of, uh, again, under the best of circumstances, without outside interference, uh, the returns on election night in November are going to come in much more slowly than we're used to seeing them. And that means we may not have a winner on election night. We may have not just Florida or one close state, we could have four or five or six close states which hold the election in the balance. And uh, we saw in California in 2018 that there were races for the House of Representatives, contests for the House of Representatives, where uh, the person who was called the winner on election night turned out to lost and all the vote by mail ballots were counted. Now, if we see that start to happen on a large scale, uh, that is going to be, without question, something which our adversaries will just seize as, a, see, democracy doesn't work. See, um, uh, elections, even in the United States, uh, can't be held fairly. Uh, they will do their best to discredit whoever the winner is, uh, by uh, saying, well, you know, on election night, you thought you knew who the winner was and you didn't. So who do you, who, who do you think really won? Now, believe it or not, this is something which uh, 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 really surprised me, but I don't know, maybe I'm too much of an optimist. There are American political consultants who go to other countries and sell their services to the loser and what they try to do is discredit the election. 
And uh, it, it's almost as if I think we need some naming and shaming at that point, but, but uh, that's really doing the work of, uh, of Russia and China and Iran and uh, North Korea and our other adversaries, because elections are tough enough to, uh, to hold in a fair and efficient and effective uh, manner without, uh, without people and democracies trying to discredit them. You referenced the 2000 election, and I believe it was a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph that showed the the poor guy looking through the, the 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 magnifying glass at the hanging chads, trying to make sure they had them all counted correctly. But that signifies the importance of getting it right, because as you say, if there is the slightest bit of doubt cast about the outcome of an election, that doesn't just taint the outcome of that election, but it taints every piece of legislation by that government throughout their time in office. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's. Uh, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know whether Bob Shrum came up with that slogan uh, uh, right at the moment, or whether he'd been thinking about it. But the idea that you know, our candidate is democracy is just so true on so many levels that uh, what we're trying to do with with you know the, all the people who are working so hard in uh, state and local elections uh, to uh, try to make certain that democracy is the winner uh, on election night is um, is really, really what we're after. I know you're right in the heat of getting to all these other half of the states you want to visit, so uh, this may not be on your radar yet, but I know you do a lot of advanced planning. When the 50 states are over, uh, when you're done with all of these, what's next for this particular group? You plan to just say, we've done our bit and now we move on to other things, or do you have some other longer range projects for the cybersecurity in- initiative? Well, we've already been approached uh, by uh, 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 by our current um, and other funders, as well as by um, uh, political and uh, election workers, saying this problem isn't going to go away in November of 2020. So, um, how do you prepare for the next election cycle, starting with 2021? There's going to be uh, gubernatorial uh, uh, statewide elections in uh, New Jersey and uh, Virginia. Uh, a number of major cities will be having elections, starting with New York City. Uh, but then uh, in 2022, we go through go through it all again. And um, if, uh, uh, if somehow uh, the problem goes away, uh, unlikely, but if the problem goes away, uh, we can declare victory and move on. But I, I doubt seriously whether there are or there's anybody in this field who thinks that uh, uh, that uh, our adversaries, uh, uh, foreign or domestic, are going to stop what they're doing. So uh, I think we keep going one way or another. Well, we're glad you are, and we're delighted to have been uh, part of your process when you visited the state of Nebraska a couple of, it'll be about a week and a half ago by the time this particular program airs. And what a delight to get to meet you and to visit with you today. We could go on for hours on these and and many related topics, but I really appreciate your time, but more importantly, I appreciate, appreciate what you and your group do for democracies around the world. Thanks for joining us. Well, th- thank you for what uh, what you're doing at the university and in uh, public broadcasting and in the state of Nebraska. Our pleasure. Our guest today on Campus Voices, Adam Clayton Powell III, Senior Fellow at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at USC and Director of Washington Programs for USC's Center on Communication Leadership and Policy, specifically with duties as the Executive Director of USC's Election Cybersecurity Initiative. I'm Rick Alloway. This has been KRNU's Campus Voices. And as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. 
This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.